Welcome to Cheek by Jowl's podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode eight, Encountering the Predicament. Hello, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and in this podcast, I'm holding a series of interviews with Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director and designer who lead the theatre company Cheek by Jowl. Over the last 40 years, they've toured all across the globe with their electrifying retellings of great classic plays. They're going to be taking us behind the scenes to share their ideas, which are not true, but useful in approaching life and theatre, following on from Declan's book, The Actor and the Target. And today, I'm on the line with them both. Hello, Declan and Nick. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. So we're meeting once again over laptop screens as the COVID-19 lockdown continues. Declan, how has this move into the virtual world been affecting your thoughts on the theatre? I think I ought to say sort of how important I think acting is at the moment. Live acting in front of live people is unbelievably important and that we infect each other with humanity. So we can't do it virtually. We actually have to be in the same space. There are many things we can't do over a screen. And um, one of them is make theatre and making theatre together is a very basic thing and we we desperately need it. I'm not just talking about the COVID-19. I'm talking about a world which is increasingly embracing the virtual because it's easier to sell it's cleaner it's more manageable and you can reproduce it you can mass produce it and you can turn what's a process into a state and actually live theater doesn't do any of those things and that the most important moment in theater i think is when the audience is all assembled there and the lights go out and the audience hushes and as somebody walks onto the stage an actor walks onto the stage and it's that moment just before when everybody's united together that's the central moment of theatre from which all the theatre will derive its authority and that's incredibly important. And how have you been finding it Nick? We have been thinking about a lot about theatre as opposed to actually doing it so that um, we've been carrying on this conversation in many ways about the space and about all sorts of things like the threshold and the predicament. So it has given us an opportunity to think as opposed to actually do it. So, today's topic is linked to an idea which will be familiar to many theatre makers, and that is the given circumstances. This is a tool which is often used in rehearsal rooms to give us a place to start work. To sum it up, given circumstances are facts around and about a scene which will influence a character's behaviour. For example, in the play Macbeth, useful given circumstances include the fact that a civil war ended yesterday, that the Macbeths have recently lost a child, and that we're in the middle of a cold, drab castle with a storm going on around it. All of these circumstances will inform how the character's body moves through the space and interacts with others. So Declan, I know that while you find the idea of given circumstances useful, you prefer to use another word. Could you tell us more about that? Well, of course, considering the given circumstances, the developing circumstances, the changing circumstances, considering those things is a crucial and wonderful way to begin Uh, a rehearsal period. Having said that, though, no word is perfect. All words are dodgy. I find circumstances a somewhat more dodgy word than predicament. The reason for that is that predicament implies danger. It implies something that's um, in peril, something that's in jeopardy, something to which you cannot truly remain neutral. And to me, circumstance, the thing that stands around you, is something that does imply um, a certain degree of neutrality. 
The problem is that we will do anything to be reassured that we live in a world of neutrality. And this is the, the sort of demon at the heart of making theatre. I think one of the things that depresses us and brings us death and makes us hibernate early is the idea that any space can ever be neutral, that a human being can be neutral. But there, is any, there is no neutrality and we don't like it. I do think the most important thing to say about it, though, is that the predicament is the thing that makes the story worth telling and that we wouldn't be bothering to put a set of circumstances on stage um, because that is what makes the story worth telling. Sometimes when people fantasize a story, sometimes producers and writers will think it's the character and the story that gets us hooked, but it isn't. It's the predicament that hooks us. It's the circumstances in danger. We think maybe that we identify with the characters of Romeo and Juliet, but I don't think we do. I think what we identify with in Romeo and Juliet is their predicament. It's the balcony, funny enough, that we identify with. It's the fact that she's on one side, he's on another, and they're doing a forbidden thing together. And it's a myth that we can't fully understand. But it's the predicament that hooks us. Like in Breaking Bad, Walter White, played brilliantly by Brian Cranston, is the predicament, the fact that he's dying of cancer, that he hasn't got enough money to look after his family. And that's the thing that hooks you into him. We think we get hooked by the characters, and maybe we do, in a, but that's a secondary phase. But the first thing, I think the thing that first punctures a hole in us is predicament, because we can imagine what it would be like to be in that predicament. It's not so easy to imagine we're another human being. The act of empathy is difficult and complicated, but a first step, a first humble step to empathizing with another human being is to understand, oh my God, I could be in that predicament too. And that's very often how we connect with other people. We identify with the predicament. So would you say that the predicament is one of the things which drives a character in a play forward through the action? Yes, exactly. It's, it's a wonderful classic mechanism that the hero thinks the predicament is one thing and then discovers that it's something else. So like in Oedipus, he thinks that the predicament is the sickness in the city, but then afterwards he realises the predicament actually is in himself. But in Walter White, we realise that as well. We think the predicament's in his cancer and the fact that he's had his ideas stolen by a competitor, the fact that he's bullied and treated so badly at school, etc., etc., but in fact, afterwards, you realize that Walter White's doing it because he wants to do it. And that was the underlying thing all along. Because the fact that he doesn't want to be him, he wants to be somebody else. He is his own predicament. It's the desire to shake off a chrysalis and emerge as this new super Walter. That's what um, destroys him. So it sounds like the struggle we each have with our own selves is part of the predicament of being a human being. I mean, for example, we've talked about the Macbeths a great deal recently. Is this the case for the Macbeths, would you say? Yes. To begin with, they think the Macbeths, I think like most of them, they think that the predicament's in the outside world. It's are we going to kill Duncan or not? But really the real predicament is themselves, is that they are, um, in a way, their own worst enemies. But you can't even say that. It's just it's the way they're made is a bit of a problem. And you often see that right from the beginning, from the very first lines of Othello put up your bright swords with the jewel rust and you think oh yeah and then you think actually do you know soldiers don't talk like that and actually movies in which somebody says like tough guy cool lines like that really and then it puts its finger on a on a problem at the heart of how othello sees himself also hamlet a little more than kin and less than kind it puts your bring it draws your attention to this He's kind of like the odd, weird, fat sons at the side trying to get attention, trying to be funny, and nobody laughs at his joke because it's not really very funny, but he says it anyway. And, you know, Shakespeare can do good jokes if he wants to, but that's 
this just makes you feel very uncomfortable. Um, and bit by bit, you piece together why he was not elected king of Denmark. So, therefore, every character in a play is encountering a huge danger and jeopardy-filled set of circumstances, and everything that they do is in reaction to that. Yes. The other thing that's important is, I think we're really honest, that the more we apprehend what predicament is, the more we sort of think about the issues, the more I think a lot of us feel like we shrink, that we feel sometimes powerless um, in the face of them. And the predicament should tower so that the characters start to shrink. Um, And we don't like shrinking. And um, we fight back whether we like it or not. But certain things come surprisingly alive once you think that the predicament is there and it's about to gobble you up. And it works, it makes the scene work an awful lot better. Um, And it's sad if one gets too tied down with the motive. Very often, the motive is self-preservation. I think the other word that's quite interesting is cool, and what it means to be cool. It's like you're not dealing, it's like you do things at your own rhythm, you don't sweat very much, you're needless, that's very, very important, and you're either the same size or, or bigger than the problems you're going to encounter. And, what, and that's kind of a boring play. It's a very boring movie if you're watching people dealing with things they can deal with. I mean, that's a really boring action movie if you're watching, if you're watching people dealing with things effortlessly. That's boring. Um, but it's the struggle to seeing people dealing with what's thrown at them and the situation always going faster than they want it to and always being outside their comfort zone. That's really important. And that's why Othello would like to convince himself that he's in his comfort zone. You know, he's assured he's presidential, but he's not. He's, he's a little kid who's too frightened to throw away his mother's handkerchief. So turning to you, Nick, much of your work as a designer involves firing up the space around the characters. How does this idea about the predicament inform the way that you think about space? The predicament is, I think, very much in the space, is very concrete, but it's kind of underwater it's sort of hidden from you and probably during the play it will become apparent at least to the audience even if the characters don't realize finally what their predicament is i mean i'm thinking the three sisters the predicament is huge for them and they're stuck out in this small town they think of themselves as sophisticated young ladies and their only entertainment are these rather flea-bitten old soldiers and as the play progresses we realize that their brother is a gambler and that he's mortgaged the house and they don't really know who the house belongs to so the predicament is gradually unraveled they probably never fully realize what it is but it's there my goodness is it there it's huge it's sort of submerged they half glimpse it every now and then but it's massive and unchanging and massively in the space. It sounds to me like all these ideas that we've talked about in the last few episodes of this podcast all influence each other. The predicament informs the space and vice versa. Yes. I mean, all these elements, threshold, predicament, encounter, they're all wrapped up in each other like tagliatelle, like spaghetti, and they're all completely inseparable. And it's misleading to take them apart and talk about them one by one because they're all kind of mixed up in a great big skein of wool. Exactly. And Declan, it sounds like what we're talking about today is also all tied up with what you were saying in episode six about dread being a great rocket fuel for understanding a character's motivation. 
So finding those negative forces like dread and danger and jeopardy can be really useful for creating life on stage. Yes, I think if the play seems due to have no dread in it, then I'd just say, look again. And then if it still has no dread in it, I'd say, do another play because it's not going to work with you. You know, There's no such thing as a work of art. What there is is an act of art. And the act of art is my connection with something. So the act of theatre does not take place on stage or in the audience. It takes place between the stage and the audience. It's really, really important for, for us always to remember that. And, you know, if you buy a Caravaggio for gazillions of pounds and you stick it in a bank cellar, it starts being a work of art until somebody revivifies it with their gaze. And then between that and the person looking at it, the act of art starts to happen. So we should make a big distinction between a work of art and act of art and realise that we're all dependent on the person who witnesses us, mm. actually. So... One word which is surfacing a lot as you talk about the predicament is encounter, as in encountering the predicament. Now, as you said, words are imperfect tools. But what is it about this particular word, encounter, which fires up your imagination when you think about plays? Well, there's two ways to think about the encounter that concern us here, two very important different ways. One is the encounter that the character has with the predicament. But there's another encounter, and that's the encounter the audience has as they watch the actor enacting that for them. The first thing I should say is that the most important thing about the encounter is that the thing that we see is going to see us back. It's open at both ends. And that's what happens when we are watching a a good piece of theatre or any good piece of art or any good conversation or any good meeting with people that we see and we are seen back. And we're frightened of being seen back. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, falling in love can seem so scary because we get frightened to be seen. And the most important encounter that we have is in a way our encounter with ourselves, because I myself am in the space, and I have to see myself. I am, to a certain degree, my own predicament, and I kind of need to see that and understand that as well as I can, with due allowance made for the fact that I'm never going to see it completely, because ultimately large tracts of myself are going to be mysterious to me. But encountering yourself is absolutely central to all of these great plays. They encounter something, and that encounter with something else makes them see themselves. So we can think about the character encountering the predicament and how it changes them. Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth in different ways have to encounter a predicament. They see something. And in what way does it see them back? Well, in each of these cases, they they sort of fracture, they disintegrate into incredible self-questioning. It's the personalities go through a form of total distortion after they've seen this extreme thing. They don't remain intact they don't retain their integrity whole they're utterly changed and we watch them changing because they confront an an extreme thing the, the predicament if you like but there's another way of thinking about the encounter and it's the central one it's the most important one which is our encounter with the play one of the things that happens i think when we go to see theater is that you're looking at the individual pitted against the predicament whatever it may be but in the end of all of that if it works brilliantly well, you start to kind of encounter yourself because you start to realize, oh, what am I bringing to this? How much of me is in this? That you're put in a somewhat painful and awkward position because you've got to question the position of which you're viewing things. Like Montaigne's cat. You know, Montaigne used to like to play with his cat. Then afterwards, he asked himself, actually, is the cat playing with me? So I think that a really good work of art has the capacity of entrapping you in a way, implicating you, and then asks you 
to look back at yourself seeing the seeing. Very often when we're seeing, we, we often need to kind of slightly readjust our feet, for example, just to make sure that we're seeing it from a slightly better position. And that's a very healthy thing to do. So when we're, when we're seen back, we often have to adjust because we're seen, because we're not quite comfortable in that position. So, for example, Macbeth comes out and talks to us like we're his best friends, and he chats away to us as if we were his confidants, and it's very flattering for us, really. And then after a while, we realize he's talking to us about something absolutely unspeakably abominable uh, about killing this old man. We kind of get worked into it. So you become an actor in this thing that's happening, and you realize that maybe there's no abstention, maybe I'm part of the system. Where am I in all of this? Where am I when Macbeth says these things to me? And that's one of the things that great art does, is it implicates us. And how do you think that this idea, encountering the predicament, can help inform an actor's work in a rehearsal room? The important thing is the actor understands that all that acting is, is us watching somebody encounter the predicament. And if, as like I've said, if there's no predicament, there's no real play. Predicament is not necessarily dramatic action. So for me, one of the greatest scenes in Shakespeare is quite remarkably postmodern. Um, it's a scene in which there is actually no dramatic action. And that is the scene between Desdemona and Amelia before um, Othello comes into the bedroom. And they have a conversation and, and nothing happens in the scene. I mean, there, there's a couple of lines like, unpin me here. So, you know, I've done it a few times, and each time uh, it's been Amelia undressing or preparing Desdemona for bed. But it doesn't actually need to be that. One could do it in all sorts of different ways. And nothing, in a way, nothing happens in the scene. But my God, there's a predicament in the guts of the audience. And so, you know, Desdemona says things like, um, my eyes do itch, does that bode weeping? And then they talk about men. They talk a lot about men. But in fact, there is a real, very violent man who's about to come through the door, um, which we in the audience know very clearly. But Amelia and Desdemona on stage, the characters sort of know it, but they also don't know it. And they're caught in that horrible twilight of knowing and not knowing. But the scene sort of goes on without dramatic action, without, with the most enormous amount of predicament. And I, that, to me, proves the fact that the essence of theatre is predicament. So let's look at, say, Happy Days by Beckett. It begins with Winnie chatting cheerfully to us about how what a wonderful day it is and is very, very cheerful. And, and the first lines are another heavenly day. But then we notice that actually she's buried up to her waist in sand. And you're thinking, <laughs> how wonderful can it be? And then if we miss the point, we go for the interval and we come back, and then she's buried up to her neck in sand. And you realize that she's in a kind of deteriorating situation, a set of circumstances which is getting worse. It's not neutral. That sand's creeping up her. And it's not the dramatic action in Happy Days that keeps you hooked. It's our encounter with the predicament. Do you know, you don't even need to have an actor um, in shot or on stage. There's a film from the 1950s, I think, black and white movie about the Titanic called A Night to Remember with Kenneth Moore in it. And there's one scene when, you know, you hear a bump and all of the diners in the first class compartment have gone upstairs and they're dancing. And then we just see the cheese trolley unattended slide across. And you know, oh my God, that's it. That was the iceberg we just heard. And there's no one in shot. There's not a single human being there. But it's about predicament. 
And that's a very clear example of what happens in a lot of plays. You're listening to the merrymaking upstairs with people dancing and you're watching the cheese trolley rolling across the floor. So all in all, this idea of encountering the predicament sounds like one way to open up our thinking about a play and help us find new ways of holding it up to the light. I think that what I'm really hoping is that words like encounter will just suggest something to the actor, to the artist, that will give them some sense of freedom as opposed to a technique to follow, you know, a kind of um, a step-by-step analysis of what you must do in order to get success. They're not magic, but they can haunt us. In this part of the podcast, we take a deep dive into a scene from a play to help us unpack our topic. And today, we're going to talk about Act 5, Scene 5 of Macbeth, which is one of the many devastating moments in this play. After murdering not only the King of Scotland, but also his best friend Banquo and the wife and child of his rival Macduff, Macbeth and his wife have been slowly unravelling, tortured by what they have done. In this scene, Macbeth discovers that Lady Macbeth has committed suicide while an avenging army closes in around the castle. He delivers a speech in which he admits the utter futility of life. Now, in this season of the podcast, we've discovered that Nick is an actor at heart. So Nick, can I ask you to step in and read Macbeth's extraordinary speech in this scene? She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Thank you, Nick. That was beautiful. So, Declan. What does this speech have to tell us about the predicament as Macbeth finally faces up to the dreadful circumstances that he himself has created? The speech, I mean, in a way, it's the kind of textbook classic. He's facing the predicament. He's facing the end and he's encountering, if you like, this thing that he thinks of as being the big truth. But I think it's a great mistake to think that the tragic heroes learn anything during the plays. He ends as he began, in a way, because tomorrow and tomorrow um, is all about despair. He shits on all life to say that all life is a tale told by an idiot. You know, you think, actually, it doesn't really need to be like that. We do despair, but we have to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, very often forgive ourselves and try better tomorrow. And there's no way that um, Macbeth's going to do that. He gives in to his despair. It also sounds to me like this is connected to what you were saying earlier, that the predicament is huge and tends to make the character shrink in the face of it. Yes, Macbeth's very, very small in the face of the predicament. That's uh, that's in the nature of the predicament, you know. The Titanic's bigger than the passengers. Um, That what he's done and and the accretion of what he's done, the, the suffering that he's caused, is so much bigger than him. He's tiny by the size of it and now at the end he's going to talk down the human predicament and say that life's pretty meaningless basically but the words come out with such feeling now i sort of feel again as so often in the play the key to it is that his unconscious is like everybody else is out of his control and he tries to control how he speaks to us but you get an extraordinary sense of depth of texture 
um, till the last syllable of recorded time. And this sort of despair is like he's running around a dark room with a few candles in it, and he's furiously blowing out each one in front of us, saying, look, I'm master of my situation. I can, I'll can, i be the guy who gets to blow the candles out. If anyone's going to pull the switch, it's me. Look, I'm blowing another candle out. But the texture of the words makes us sort of really feel for him. And, and you know that if only Macbeth could ever let himself be held. But, of course... He can't. So would you say that in this speech, Macbeth betrays himself? He's trying to be cool and cynical about this dreadful predicament of human life. But the rich poetry leaks out and betrays the massive depth of dread and human feeling going on underneath. It shows his desperate struggle to hold on to something, to talk himself into control of this massive, incomprehensible, terrifying set of circumstances, which are all the more terrifying because he himself is the one responsible for them. It's a pitiful and magnificent act of denial and control. Yes, he's trying to make his shabby little end seem epic. But what's so tragic for me in, in Macbeth is the huge propensity for love that's in Lady Macbeth and Macbeth that you feel is having to be stifled all the way through the play. There's this redeeming love that they have in themselves and they have to cut off. They're absolutely not empathy-free psychopaths. They, 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 they're stifling love, and it keeps coming out of them. It comes out in children images, in all sorts of images that comes out. I think it even comes out in the diction in this speech, but they have to, he has to cut it off, cut it off, cut it off, um, control it, to control that loving impulse. And I think that's so heartbreaking. And Nick, when you were working together on your production of Macbeth, did these ideas about the predicament inform any of the stage images that you went about composing with the acting company? Yes. When it's announced that the Queen is dead, in fact, she was sitting on his lap, I think, on stage, when we'd already know she was dead. And then it was announced that she was dead, and then she moved away from him, and you kind of realised that, in a sense, the ter their terrible predicament was their relationship, was their marriage, was, was absolutely fundamental to them and somehow their actions profoundly damaged it. Their murder that they plotted together was the end of their relationship. That just that physical movement seemed to me to express that deeply frightening predicament. reached the part of the podcast where we answer questions that listeners have put to us. And today's question is in response to episode six, why we do what we do. This listener asks, if fear is such a good power pack for a scene, then what place does hope and positive emotions have in motivating human behaviour? Do you think that joy ever drives the action of a play? Yes, quite possibly. But remember, that I'm not talking about truth. I'm talking about what's useful. And what's useful is to actually find that instead of hope, you have the terror of despair. Instead of joy, you have the terror of unhappiness or suffering. You'll find much more energy in that. What I've discovered is that when you tend to try and follow the positive emotions, you often run out of energy very, very fast. I think it's by, you know, Milton found it easier to write Satan than, than, than the good angels, you know, it's um, because it automatically 
puts us into conflict. And it's only really in conflict that we, in a way, discover who we are, that the living organism only understands what it is when it comes into conflict with something else, and that sort of shows it up. And also, the essence of life is friction, and friction implies a certain degree of discomfort. It's things like that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not here as a truth-sayer, but it's a very interesting question. To what degree does true positive emotions help? I just don't think they do. Um, but I'm only speaking from a practical point of view. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, I do think there is joy. I do think there is love. I do think there is hope. I do actually, as, as, a, as an individual, if you like, I do believe those things as kind of profound spiritual givens, actually. My job at the moment, as far as I see it, is, is to help. And I just find that they don't really help. It actually helps much more if we are trying to avert the bad thing. I've come to this, though, through trial and error over decades of work. And that if you play a love scene for just joy, trying to find love for each other during the love scene, I've discovered it doesn't really work, that it sort of falls apart and it tends to become sentimental. It always needs the edge. It always needs the negative of don't leave me, don't betray me, don't let me down, um, let this moment last forever, don't let this um, moment end. That If you find the negative in it, it works. So, for example, the word that you can't act, I believe, is yes unless you put a no in front of it. In the action of the target, I do a big riff in the fact that all text says no, and I still absolutely stick to that. Even if you've got to say yes, um, you have to find a no in front of it. In other words, no, I mean yes. Because if you need the friction to give you the life. And that's where we're going to end for today. So thank you, Declan and Nick, and have a great week. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Cheek by Gel's podcast, Not True, But Useful. As always, if the plays that we talked about today have piqued your interest, then check out the podcast notes for the text of the deep dive scene and links to archive images from Cheek by Gel's productions. In the meantime, I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're listening to was composed by Pavela Kimkin. Until next week. <laughs>